You know, Matt, I need some clarity. If the cups are a cool kid test, which is the cool one? I'm somewhere between easy open and pocket knife, so I'm not exactly sure where that places me on the, the cool test. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Great to see you today and excited about our continuing examination of stories through the life of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be in John chapter 4. I invite you to open up in your own Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at a conversation, an interesting conversation, uh, with a very unlikely person. Uh, as you're turning here, let me uh, tell you that today's lesson is a little bit of a different approach from how I typically, uh, how we typically plan and present sermons. It's, it's no real secret by this point. You've, we've known each other a while. Uh, you kind of know what to expect when you come in, and you kind of get a, a sense of the way I typically prepare. And a lot of my sermons come from my own personal means of study, my favorite method, which is to ask what of the text? What are the details? What are the, the people and places? Uh, so what? How does this fit into the bigger picture? Now what? Based on this, what do I go and do with my life? And a lot of times, as you know me, you know that that's the way a sermon kind of unfolds. That's kind of the direction that we often take. If I don't do that, the next approach that I sometimes will use is just to kind of go verse by verse and look at it through a lens of what does each one of these uh, verses in this story tell us and try to draw some points from that. Well, today, in all honesty, it's a... It's a much different, today's a much different lesson, and, and uh, I've grappled a lot with how to present these things, and it finally decided it just took me in a place that instead of trying to wrap it up in a nice, neat package, I've just decided to let you wander this journey with me, and so together, here we go. We're going to jump into this text, and we're going to see where it takes us as we journey with Jesus through John chapter 4. Following in your Bibles, mine says this. So when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was making more disciples than John, and he was baptizing them, and Jesus himself didn't baptize people, it was his disciples who were doing it, he left Judea and he went back to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria, and he came to a town in Samaria named Sychar. It was near the place where Jacob gave to his son Joseph. The, I'm sorry, near the place to which Jacob gave to his son Joker. Uh, Jacob's well was also there. So Jesus, tired from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about midday. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus spoke to her. Give me a drink, he said. The disciples had gone off to town to buy food. What? said the Samaritan woman. You, a Jew, asking for a drink from me, a woman? and a Samaritan at that. Jews, you see, don't have any dealings with Samaritans. If only you'd known God's gift, replied Jesus, and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you'd have asked him, and he would have given you living water. But sir, replied the woman, you haven't got a bucket, and the well is deep. So how were you thinking of getting this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and who drank of it himself with his sons and his animals? Everyone who drinks this water, Jesus replied, will go thirsty again. But anyone who drinks the water that I give them won't ever be thirsty again. No, the water I'll give will become a spring of water welling up to the life of God's new age. Sir, 
the woman said. Give me this water, and then I won't be thirsty anymore, and I won't have to come and draw from this well. Well then, said Jesus to the woman, go and call your husband and come here. I haven't got a husband, replied the woman. You're telling me you haven't got a husband, replied Jesus. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the one you've got now isn't your husband. You were speaking the truth. Well, sir, the woman replied, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, and you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Believe me, woman, replied Jesus. The time is coming when you won't worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. Salvation, you see, is indeed from the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's already here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, that's the kind of worshipers the Father is looking for. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I know the Messiah is coming, said the woman. The one they call the anointed one. When he comes, he'll tell us everything. I'm the one. The one speaking to you right now, said Jesus. Skip down to verse 39. Several Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of what the woman said in evidence about him. She said, he told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. And many more believed of what he said. We believe too, they said to the woman. But it's no longer because of what you told us. We heard him ourselves. And we know that he really is the one. He's the Savior of the world. This is our story for this morning. And it indeed has many interesting things for us to peruse and discuss, as you might see from that reading. An enormously long conversation. A highly unlikely pair of conversants. In an unusual place, talking about rare topics for common discussion. And so many things in this that I really want us to delve into. I've limited myself to this morning to these five things, and we'll go through these. As you can see, they don't necessarily have a lot of structure, rhyme, or reason, or order to them. But five things that I think are important for us to, to, to analyze and look at in this story. First of all, I want us to bust some common assumptions. There's some things in this story that I think are historically inaccurate, but we have these pictures in our minds, these narratives of how we sometimes go to stories in Scripture, and we bring with it some flawed pictures, some flawed presumptions. And we want to talk about a few of those this morning. Second, I want us to draw out some important facts, some things in this story that may not be clear on the obvious to us, but would be helpful. Third, I want to make a comparison that you might think a little odd, but I hope you'll bear with me, because I think it'll bear some fruit if we will. Fourth, I want to show you that this really is not the first time this story took place. That this is actually something that has historical precedent from hundreds of years previous. And finally, I'm going to suggest some things that we can take into this week and maybe apply to our own lives. First of all, let's bust some common assumptions. You know, there are some common assumptions that we have. You're probably like me when you sit down and you see this story before you, you, you already are quite familiar with it. And there's a lot of things that you probably uh, already know to be true about this story. Same was true with me this week. 
as I sat down and Bishop and I spent this week studying this story in depth, I was surprised at how many things I learned about the W-A-T-W, the woman at the well, as we began to call her this week. You know, one of the things that I've always kind of assumed, and probably you believe this too, you may have heard this in a lesson, you may have heard this in a sermon, is that this is a very loose and sinful woman. We always have this picture of her being a, a, a wildly uh, loose, just a, a sinful, uh, sinful woman. I mean, after all, look at what we have here. A woman who's had five husbands and she's living with a man that she's not married to. Well, there's a couple of things in this that I think really need to have some analysis applied to them. First of all, she had five divorces. Five marriages that resulted in five divorces. There's a couple of things we have to remember historically. Women could not file for divorce. So she did not file for divorce any of the five times that she was divorced, but she was divorced by five men. None of those times did she instigate that action. Secondly, we always assume that there's unfaithfulness on her part. We've heard it talked about before in classes. We assume that she was an unfaithful woman, that she was an adulterous woman, that she was cheating on her, on her husband or husbands. Well, again, this is highly unlikely. Because in those days, they had exceptionally high punishment for adultery of women. For women to be committing adultery uh, resulted in death. So the woman who was caught in adultery, though we know clearly that this was often winked at when it came to the men. There was a great double standard there that the men usually received no punishment whatsoever. But women caught in adultery were stoned to death. And if she, by some act of grace, had been able to get away with it once, she certainly was not going to get away with it multiple times. So the picture that we know she was an adulterous woman, a, a sinful woman because of her divorces, is actually un... Well, there's no evidence to support that. Furthermore, there is a, a picture here of an adulteress that's important for us to recognize. She's never called in this story an adulteress. And the Bible makes no bones about calling an adulteress an adulteress. Numerous stories in Scripture clearly identify a woman as a woman who was caught in adultery. Think about the woman who was drugged before Jesus that, in that fateful story. She was caught in the very act of adultery and they make no bones about that. There would be no reason here for the gospel writers to not include that charge if that charge were merited. So, probably, no reason for us at all to think that she was in any way an adulterous woman, that she cheated on her husbands. And so the, the, the situation of her being married five times is something that has to be seen in a little different light. Here's something we have to remember. Women had very, very little voice about who they married. Women had very little voice about who they married. They really got very little choice at all about that. Normally that was arranged by a father or an older brother. And they were often married off to give some kind of advantage to the family. A father who may want to marry off a daughter to get an advantage with his business. Or a brother who marries off a sister so that he can gain advantage in some social standing or some kind of advantage in the community. The reality is that probably it's very likely that this woman was not a sinful woman. This woman was a terrible victim of a family that continued to put her into loveless sham marriage after sham marriage for the sake of some man's uh, gain and advantage. It changes the perspective of this story completely. Instead of seeing this woman as, as sinful and evil, 
we begin to really see her for what she probably is. A woman who is in the depths of heartbreak, who has been subject to loveless marriage after another, who's been used as a ploy by older family members, male family members, to gain advantage for them. And then there's the fact that she's living with a man. And we all say to that, well, obviously here is a clear indication of a sinful woman living with a man that's not her husband. Again, to look at history, one would be led to believe historically that there wasn't a romantic uh, connection with this. It was incredibly unlikely, unheard of, that you would have a man bring a... um, a woman with whom he was having a relationship into his home. Uh, Michael Hodeman, who is a renowned scholar and, uh, and researcher in biblical matters, says that there are very, very few examples in the entire region of this ever happening during the time of Jesus. Not even true with the Samaritans. So what we have here is a situation that we've always assumed she's shacking up with a guy, when in reality what we probably have is her living with an older brother or a family member who's probably the same male family member who keeps marrying her off for all kinds of advantage to himself. These common assumptions, these common narratives that we have of this woman color the way we go into this story. When we step into this story assuming that what we have here is a dirty, evil, adulterous, vile woman, it makes us view her different as the story unfolds. I'd like to suggest if we see this woman for what she more likely was, a terrible victim of a historical prejudice in a world that did not treat women with dignity and respect, we can begin to see her a little bit more as Jesus saw her that day. You see, it's easy for us to see her as the villain, when in actuality we need to see her as the victim. Victim of a broken, a broken system. I, I want this, girl, this woman to be authentic to us. I want her to be real. And if we see her as real, I think we'll see the story in a new and powerful light. So, outside of the common assumptions that we want to look at, let's take a look now at some important facts that are true about this text. It's interesting to me to note that... This is the longest conversation that Jesus has recorded in all of Scripture. I found that interesting. If you think about all the people with whom Jesus had conversations in his lifetime, the longest recorded conversation wasn't with John the Apostle. It wasn't with John the Baptist. It wasn't with his mother Mary. It wasn't with Lazarus or Mary or Martha or or, or Peter. It was with this woman, a highly unlikely person, Highly unlikely. Verse 27, it says they were shocked because he was speaking with a woman. Some important facts about this is to remember that in this moment, Jesus turns popular convention completely on its head. In every possible way, this was an unlikely scenario. A conversation that should never have happened. A conversation that should have had no business whatsoever taking place. Because that just wasn't what you did. Men in public did not speak to women. You didn't do it. Jews, religious Jews, did not talk to people who were not religious practicing Jews, and Samaritans certainly weren't. Uh, Jews 
wouldn't talk to Samaritans. That, that was the pure blood race of the Jews and the Samaritans were a mixed blood race and they were hated. In every single possible means by which these two should be determined, there is no reason for them to ever have a conversation. And in one swoop, Jesus tosses all three conventions out the window. He addressed her in her gender as a woman, as equal and valuable. He addressed her in her faith, which was synchronistic, as valuable, as equal to her, as worthy of his time. He addressed this woman as a Samaritan, despite her ethnicity having no bearing on the fact that she was valued and important to him. And Jesus continues to throw all kinds of um, conventions on their head throughout his life. It's especially true when you see him interacting with women. The first person to see Jesus resurrected was a woman. Uh, Jesus overturned all kinds of things in that moment when he had that dialogue with the woman and she had an unclean bleeding disorder. He spoke to her. He spent time with her. He touched her. Compassionate show of love to her. He welcomed Mary of Bethany. When Mary and Martha were complaining about who's doing the right thing, Mary wants to listen to the lessons and Martha wants to do cooking and cleaning and Jesus says, learning at my feet is the better thing. He invited her to learn. Women would never have been invited to learn from a rabbi. Cultural, social, religious, ethnic, political, in almost every possible way, this conversation should never have happened. It just shouldn't have taken place at all. Third thing that's interesting is where in the story this is found. I'll remind you of the story we just had as we go through the Gospel of John. When we go through the Gospel of John, we are uh, introduced to the man Nicodemus. Immediately prior to this story is the story of Nicodemus. And in the story of Nicodemus, one of the only, one of the only other conversations of Jesus in Scripture, Nicodemus says a total of 44 words. That, by standard, is a long conversation. The woman at the well spoke 126 words. Her conversation with him was longer, it was deeper in content, and it was more powerful in results than even the conversation Jesus had just a few verses earlier with a man named Nicodemus. Now, I'm not sure how clear this is going to be. In fact, I can see now that it's not as clear. When I looked at it, I uh, was standing here, and from here, it's actually pretty clear to see. I would imagine from there, it's not as clear to see. But let me read to you some of the differences between the conversation with Nicodemus and the conversation with the Samaritan woman because it is a really important thing. On one conversation, you have Nicodemus, a man. On the other conversation, you have a Samaritan woman, a woman. One takes place in Jerusalem, the high point of Jewish society. The other one goes in Sychar, which is a place of great disrepute. One person, Nicodemus, is self-righteous. One person sees herself as unrighteous. One person is a ruler of the Jews, Nicodemus. One person is hated by the Jews, a Samaritan. One comes in the middle of the night. One comes in the middle of the day. Nicodemus came seeking out Jesus. Jesus came seeking out the woman. Nicodemus knew who Jesus was. The woman did not have any idea who Jesus was. <laughs> Nicodemus gets into a conversation about being born again and just completely messes it up. She gets into a conversation about living water. 
But she gets it, and here's why. Next point. Because Nicodemus doesn't persist to understanding. And she does. Nicodemus comes asking about spiritual things, but gets lost in natural things. The woman comes talking about natural things and discovers spiritual things. Nicodemus says a little. The woman says a lot. Nicodemus wonders if Jesus is the Messiah. The woman discovers that Jesus truly is the Messiah. Nicodemus ends by being rebuked by Jesus. And what happened to Nicodemus immediately after that, we don't know. The Samaritan woman is praised. The one who is most likely to tell all the friends and relatives and family about Christ doesn't do it, Nicodemus. The least likely person in the world to proclaim Christ to friends and family is the Samaritan woman who does. And ultimately, one conversation ends in confusion and frustration. Nicodemus walked away scratching his head, not sure. The other one ends in joy and salvation. And so it comes down to this, what made the difference? What made the difference in one chapter with Nicodemus and the next chapter in the woman? And I think a lot of it comes down to just one simple idea. Pride. Nicodemus was rebuked by Jesus because he had the inability to fulfill his role as the teacher of Israel. Jesus said, you are supposed to be a teacher of Israel and you don't even understand these things. But this woman, <laughs> who had every single mark against her, became the first one to share with an entire village of people about Jesus Christ. And I think a lot of it comes down to the same thing that keeps you and I sometimes today from really embracing Christ and being the force in the world for Him that we would have, He would have us to be. And it's as simple as pride. We'll see why in just a moment. So, to this point, as I promised, the next thing I wanted to talk about was how this is similar to an older story. One of the things that gained a lot of discussion this week as we were talking back and forth uh, about this lesson and preparing and studying, the first one is how interesting this would be if it were the man at the well. Many, many ideas, many conversations about what, how different this would be if this were the man at the well. Because it's a different story at that point. But the other conversation was how it referred back to something very old. In, in verse 39 of this story, Jesus proclaimed that, or it was proclaimed that Jesus knew her and knew everything about her. Remember why it was that the Samaritan people came and rushes to Jesus? They came out initially because this woman said, he's told me everything I've ever done. This is a prophet. He knows what I'm doing. He knows everything about me. Come see this. And at the end, they said, we came to hear him because he knew you. But now we've heard him ourselves. Now we understand him ourselves. Now we accept him ourselves. How interesting that Jesus knew everything about her and that resulted in her being drawn to him. Just as an aside, I've got to admit with you, sometimes when I realize that Jesus knows everything about me, that doesn't make me very attractive. That doesn't make me very attractive to him. But it sure makes him attractive to me. Because he does know everything about me. And yet, he pursued me anyway. He did know. And he does know. 
everything about us and pursues us anyway. The story that this reminded me of is a story from Genesis chapter 13. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 16. In Genesis chapter 16, you have this story of this woman. Her name is Hagar. And Hagar, of course, you'll remember, was in a loveless marriage herself. She was in a terrible marriage, and, uh, and she was... Uh, thrust out of her home. She was kicked out into the wilderness. She was sent off unloved and uncared for by herself, rejected, spurned in marriage, despised because she was an ethnic blend. She was an ethnic mix. She wasn't a pure blood. Um, she was heartbroken because the man that she loved did not love her back. She was desperately alone and she finds herself of all places at a well. Does that story sound familiar in some way? The story of Hagar in Genesis 16, the story of the woman at the well here in John 4, are both pictures of this same kind of woman. And in both cases, what we walk away from is a God who sees her. In fact, Hagar, in this conversation with God, in chapter 16, verse 13, says in Genesis, You are the God who, Eloroi, you see me. To be truly seen by God was something that both of these heartbroken women needed so desperately in their darkest moment. Can I say to you that we're not any different? In our darkest moment, one of our greatest needs is to know that God sees. He knows. He feels. He cares. And He hurts. In both of these situations, God the, God the Father and God the Son, they see these women. They don't see these women as divorcees. They don't see these women as members of failed marriages. They don't see these women as foreigners. They don't see these women as loose women. They don't see these women as broken. They see these women as precious. They see these women as worthy of their time. They see these women as loved and lovable. They see them with compassion. And that is exactly what I need in my dark moment at the well. And so do you. It's also interesting to me that the most unlikely person to share with her village was the person God chose. If you could live, list all the people in Sychar at the time and say, the Messiah is going to come to this town, which one of these people is most likely to be the one to tell everybody about it? I guarantee this woman would have been way down the end of the list somewhere. But isn't that just how God always works? Isn't God always going about getting the person at the end of the list to do the work of sharing his name to others? It's an interesting thing when you think about it. The apostle to the Gentiles was Paul, a man who desperately hated Gentiles and a man who was hated by the Gentiles. And when God said, I need somebody to send to the Gentiles, he chooses the one man who was most hated by them and who hated them most. What about the apostle to the Jews, Peter? Peter. Peter was hated by the Jewish society. Of all the people to choose, God chose the one who was the least likely candidate to go to them. And here, when he bursts on the scene in Sychar, he chooses the most unlikely witness he could choose. Why is that important? Because he chooses us as unlikely as we are. As unlikely as we are. He chooses us to be his witness today. So what does this have to do with us? How can we really take this and apply this to our life? How can we really learn from the story of the woman at the well? What's in this that you and I can take? Well, there's a couple of things that I think are important for us to recognize about her. 
and points that we'll be able to draw application from ourselves. First of all, she persisted through confusing things. She persisted through confusing things. She didn't give up. She didn't quit trying just because something got complicated or hard to understand. She kept persisting. Not only that, she was never ashamed of what she didn't know. Are there times when your Bible knowledge causes you to be ashamed because of things you don't know? Are there times that you want to ask a question, you'd like to understand something better, but you're embarrassed, and you think, I, I, I should know these things, so I'm not going to ask that question, I'm not going to make that point, I'm not going to pursue that knowledge. She wasn't. She was never embarrassed by her lack of knowledge. She just kept persisting. She kept asking. She kept learning. Third, she didn't let public perception determine who she was or what she was capable of doing. Can you imagine the self-doubt that must have been creeping into her mind as she turned to walk back into the village to, to tell everybody? There must have been this voice that says, What are you doing? Who are you to tell everybody about this? You've got no business being the one to tell everybody about this. But she didn't let her public perception determine her usefulness to Jesus. She wasn't limited by her past either. She wasn't limited by her past. You know, the reality is I have a past and you have a past. And if we choose to, we can allow that to limit what we'll do in the kingdom of God. This woman did not allow that to limit what she could do in the kingdom of God. And so it is that these same lessons are here for us. So I told you this morning I wanted to leave you with a challenge. I wanted to leave you with something to work on, something that you could put into practice, something that you could do this week. And so here's what we've got. The beautiful woman that we have in this story had a heart after God. And here's the first. When you find yourself this week in a dilemma, when you find yourself this week in a confusion, I challenge you to persist through the challenging questions until you find God. Find your answers. Find your answers. All too often we sit before a dilemma and we just throw our hands up and give up. We say, I don't know. I don't know what I should do. I don't understand what to do here. I don't. And that's not what she did. She persisted until she found resolution in God. I challenge you to do that this week. Second, don't let your lack of something keep you from doing what you can do. There are many excuses this woman could have used. I'm not the right gender. I'm not the right ethnicity. I'm not the right social standing. I don't have the right knowledge. I don't have the right capacity. There are many things. I don't, I don't have any business doing this. But she didn't let what she didn't have keep her from doing what she could do. I challenge you this week. Don't let your lack of something keep you from doing what you can do for Jesus. Third, don't let your past determine your usefulness. Don't let your past determine what you can do. Don't let your past determine your future. His grace is greater than your greatest failing. Let me say that again because somebody needs to hear that. His grace is greater than your greatest failing. And what he has in store for you tomorrow is more wonderful than anything that you have experienced in your past. Last, find someone you can share this story with. Better yet, find someone you can share Jesus with. But maybe this story is a jumping off point. Maybe this story is a story you can share with someone. But find someone this week that you can share Jesus with. 
You see, the very first thing this woman did when she came to recognize who this man was in front of her is she went out and told everybody she knew. And I think the example's there for us. Do you really know who this man Jesus is? Have you really come to the conclusion, the determination, the belief that He is Jesus Christ, the Lord, Savior? He is the Son of God. He is the one who left the glories of heaven to come and walk this dusty roads of life. If you know that, if you believe that in your heart, then the example of what we do with that knowledge is clear. We share it. That's what God's people do. And we as God's people are in the business of telling others about the wonderful story of the God that we love. The Son that He sent to die for us and the Spirit that lives within us illuminating our lives day by day and step by step. This morning... I just want to plead with you and encourage you to think seriously about your next steps in your journey with Jesus. I want you to think seriously about the challenge that this woman puts before us because her example is a beautiful, practical example of how we can put her life into practice in our lives this very week. But all that is determined by the reality that we have a starting point in Jesus. And it might be this morning that you are here and and you've never begun your journey with Jesus. Maybe you've never accepted His loving invitation to make Him the Lord of your life. Maybe you've never carried before Him the burden of your sins, laid them down at His feet, repented of them, been buried in the waters of baptism, and risen up out of those waters a new creation. I want you to know that opportunity is awaiting you right now. Nothing would make us more excited, more joyful, than to help you begin your journey with Jesus. And if we can help you with that, we want you to know we're right here to do that. Stand right here in the back of this room for that very purpose. But also, maybe you have a burden today. Maybe there's a need, maybe there's a prayer request you have, maybe you need someone to walk along beside you, and we want to be a family to you, support you in any way we can. However, we can help you on your next step in your journey with Jesus. Won't you let that be known as we stand together and as we sing?